Well, two weeks ago, we started a new series. We've been examining difficult questions of the Christian faith. And the 12 questions that we are looking at come from a book by Rebecca McLaughlin called Confronting Christianity. That first week, two weeks ago, we looked at the question, aren't we better off without religion? And the primary focus of that message was not on whether or not Christianity was true, but was it good? Is it valuable? And I promised when I was given that message that the focus on truth claims were coming. And that's what we're going to be dealing with this morning. So today's question is this. How can you say that there's only one true faith? How can you say that there's only one true faith? And in a sense, this is the inquiry of the agnostic. An agnostic is someone who might believe that there is a God or a higher power out there, but they lack the knowledge of their identity. I mean, the term agnostic comes from the Greek language, the prefix a, meaning without, lacking, and the word gnosis, which means knowledge. It's someone who is lacking or does not have knowledge of the divine. Excuse me. An agnostic is prone to say that they are spiritual, but not religious. Right? They desire to pursue some kind of transcendent experiences, but they don't want to be locked down to any particular faith system. Right? They might look around at all these different faith systems that exist in the world and struggle to know what is true in the midst of these competing ideologies in the face of these differing viewpoints, right? How can you determine objective truth if, that, if such a thing even exists? Here's a story, it's a parable that, that um, gives a picture of this framework. You may have heard it before. It's a parable that comes from an ancient Hindu text. And in this story, <clears throat> there are six blind men and they're all touching an elephant, each one at a different body part. And they're attempting to describe this object this animal that they are touching. The first one touches the trunk and compares it to a snake. The second one feels the ear and compares it to a fan. The third one touches the elephant's leg and compares it to a tree trunk. The fourth pushes against the elephant's sides and insists that this is like an unmovable wall. The fifth holds the elephant's tail, comparing it to a braided rope. And the final man touches the elephant's tusks and compares the object to a spear. Now, many have used this parable as a comparison to different world religions that are all seeking out the divine. That these faith systems are blindly reaching out to God, each one touching on a different component of God. And the argument, as it often goes, is that each of these religions is correct in their own way. They're all, you know, they're they're all correct. They're all touching a part of that elephant or of God in this case. And which religion you practice doesn't matter because they all lead to God. But there are a few significant problems with the parable. For starters, none of the blind men are actually correct. They've all discovered a component of the elephant, but none of them recognize it as an elephant. 
They're still ignorant of the bigger picture, ignorant of the animal's identity. C.S. Lewis used to say something to the effect that a worldview or a belief system could be 90% true, but still be wrong. And I'll be the first to acknowledge that different religious systems, they all have different elements of truth in them. But just because they have elements of truth does not mean that they've adequately framed an accurate image of the divine. Now, the, the other flaw in this parable is that there is actually seven characters in the story. There's a seventh person who is not identified in the story. The final character is the one who is telling the story, the narrator. Right, there are six blind men who are groping blindly at the elephant, but then the seventh sees everything, sees what is going on and is able to communicate that to the reader. Right? It's because of the narrator that we even know that the animal that they're touching is an elephant. Now, what this speaks to is something that theologians would call revelation. Not revelation, the book of the Bible, but revelation is a way in which God communicates, gives information to his people. Now, the argument is that we would not understand God if it were not for his revelation to us. Think about it like the narrator telling us background information. Without that knowledge, we might, you know, if you said, okay, I have something that's like a snake and a tree trunk and a spear, you know, maybe we could get to an understanding of what the an elephant was, but more often than not, we'd probably have some other outlandish picture. And so Christian theology breaks revelation into two categories. General or natural revelation is the first one. It's what God communicates through the world that he has created, that we can understand certain aspects of God's character through creation. Skajitani, I'll just keep name dropping him today, I guess, um, in his devotional this week pointed to the fact that, you know, in the creation of vegetation in the Bible, this is Genesis chapter 2, the Bible first describes the beauty, that the trees were pleasant to sight before it described their usefulness, that they were good for food. It's Genesis 2.9. The fact that creation is beautiful, is pleasing to the eye, points to the playfulness and joy of God's design, which points to, it reflects the playfulness and joy of God himself. So by just looking at creation, we can know that the divine out there is good, is joyful, loves us. But the other category of revelation is called special revelation. We would believe this to be like the scriptures, the Bible ultimately Jesus himself. And it's God telling us aspects of his nature that are unknown to us, that we wouldn't just glean from creation. He's making them known. It's the narrator, right? It's like the narrator of the story telling us that this mysterious object is an elephant. And who better to tell us what God is like than Jesus Christ, God himself. Now, of course, I'm, I'm up here, we're, we're in a Christian church, so I'm advocating for the truthfulness of the Christian tradition. But my point in this is that there, there's a mutual exclusivity between faith systems. Like our parable, the object was not a snake, it was not a fan, it wasn't a tree trunk, it wasn't a wall, it wasn't a rope, it wasn't a spear, it was an elephant. 
The blind men may have highlighted components of the elephant, but only one character correctly identifies the animal's true form. I don't believe that it's possible for all religions to be equally true. I don't think that every path can lead to God because those paths go in vastly different directions. For example, either Christianity is true and we are promised everlasting life following our death on this earth. Either that is true or the atheist worldview is right. And when I die, I'm just worm food. Either Christianity is right that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again to new life, or Islam is correct, which teaches that Jesus did not die on the cross but ascended right to heaven. Or that Judaism is correct, that Jesus died on that cross, or he died as a normal human being and remains dead to this day. Those are vastly different pictures of one component of faith, of what happened to Jesus. Either there is one God highlighted in the monotheistic faiths of Abraham, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, or like Hinduism and the polytheism before it in Egypt, Greece, and Rome, there are dozens, if not millions, of gods. There may be plenty of places where these different faith systems overlap. Different religions can all have something positive to say on ethics and morality. They all promise an opportunity for the participant to experience some form of transcendence or connect to a power greater than themselves. But some of the key defining characteristics of these different religions are mutually exclusive from one another. I I mean, take Jesus that I mentioned just a few months ago. Jesus is the central figure of Christianity, God in the flesh dwelling among his people. But that figure is understood very differently between just those three Abrahamic faiths. His death is either a historical fact or it isn't. So too, his resurrection from the dead is either a historical fact or it isn't. They can't both be right simultaneously. Now, I'm not yet saying that Christianity must be true. What I am suggesting is that Christianity and Islam cannot both be right simultaneously. Judaism and Hinduism cannot both be true at the same time. Again, there might be elements of truth that they overlap, maybe like a think of a Venn diagram, but in the wholeness, they can't be true. I'm trying to help us understand that while we ought to respect the traditions of one another, to try to homogenize the two different perspectives into one stream is not possible. Praveen uh, Sethupathi is a professor of genetics at Cornell University, and Praveen was raised Hindu, Uh, but he kind of has that scientific background, being a scientist by nature. He wanted to test the the hypothesis, the framework that he was given as a child. And so he began to question Hinduism. And Christianity was one of the faith systems that he investigated, was intrigued by, and eventually embraced. And so here's someone who has this tangible experience of what it meant to be a Christian and be a Hindu. And he can understand the differences between the two. 
So Rebecca McLaughlin in her book is, is speaking of her friend and says this. She says, ask Praveen how he can say that there is only one true faith, and he will tell you that he has no choice. To claim that Hinduism and Christianity are ultimately compatible is to do violence to both. All religions cannot be equally true. But what about Christianity? Is it true? And that's ultimately the million-dollar question for us. Now, I would suggest that the entirety of the Christian faith rises and falls on the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul understood this when he wrote his first letter to the Corinthians. He dedicates a whole chapter, chapter 15, to investigate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the ramifications it has in our lives. I'm going to read just a section of that. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Because there are some people saying that resurrection didn't happen after people died there in Corinth. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And here's the kicker. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now Paul appropriately stakes the life of his faith on the claim of the resurrection. He says that if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then our work is futile. There's no point in it. If Christ hasn't been raised, then we haven't been delivered from our sins and we're to be pitied above all people. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is useless. It's wishful thinking. There's no power in it to save. Now, Paul's very next line, again, reinforces the resurrection to his audience. He said, but, if, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The, the, the verses I read for you are a bunch of ifs, if-then statements, hypothetical statements. But then he says very concretely, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so as we consider whether or not Christianity is true, we need only look at the growth of the church. There was an explosion of church growth in the years following the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now keep this in mind. <clears throat> this was during a time of fierce persecution. It was not a hospitable time for the church. It was not an easy time to be a Christian. But it was during that time that there were plenty of eyewitness accounts. You might hear a story of a dead man coming to life again and assume, man, that's got to be some tall tale, like Babe and his blue ox, or Babe the blue ox. You know, a new religious mythology. But then you run into your friend Jacob, who is a baker down the street, and Jacob was one of over 500 people, the Bible says, ran into Jesus. 
saw Jesus walking around after his death by the Romans with their own two eyes. They saw him. They touched him. And they shared that good news with others, which I think led to this explosion of the church. Now, you guys know, I, I, for me, I like to boil things down to science, think of scientific terms. And so think about it this way. In chemistry, in order to have a reaction, even a reaction that is exothermic, so an exothermic reaction is a reaction that gives off heat, like an explosion, you need to put energy into the system. It's called the activation energy. I'm not going to quiz you on this later. But in chemistry, right, there is a component that can aid that chemical reaction. Let's say you have a really high activation energy, but there's something you can add to that system to bring that activation energy lower, and it's called, and it, 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 it in itself is not consumed, and it's called a catalyst. A catalyst can decrease the energy required, or it can speed up the reaction. A catalyst is something that is uniquely shaped to unlock the latent energy hidden in the reagents. And so if we kind of take this scientific approach and and project it upon what I'm trying to talk about, if we think about this explosive, this exothermic growth of the church, I would argue there had to be some event, some type of catalyst that unlocked the faith of those people. And I believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the catalyst. It was that thing that led to the volatile growth of this new faith. People weren't afraid of the Romans torturing and killing them because they knew beyond a shadow of the doubt that there was something beyond this life of death because they had seen a man who was formerly dead and walked again, who claimed to be God. And this should not have come as any surprise to his first hearers because Jesus often claimed divine status. He often claimed that he was God. Uh, There are a number of skeptics, you can find this all over the place, who argue that Jesus never claimed to be God. And if by that they mean that Jesus never said in English the words, I am God, then I wholeheartedly agree with them. But I would say it is impossible to read through the New Testament with an understanding of the Hebrew background, understanding of the culture, uh, both linguistically, uh, uh, religiously, and not see the subtle ways in which Jesus clearly communicated his divinity. I mean, there were numerous times that he finished saying something that seems cryptic to us. We might not understand it, but the text tells us that it was clear to the people around him because they picked up stones to throw at him. Right? They knew precisely what he was saying and they were prepared to stone him for blasphemy because he was claiming to be God. And so in this, right, Jesus said, I'm God. Again, not maybe in those quite literal terms. And so C.S. Lewis takes Jesus' words and he puts them through a logical challenge. It's clear from the text that Jesus claimed to be God, so that Lewis argues that means there's only three options that we can consider. There are three L's, so it makes it easy to remember. Jesus was either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Either Jesus was a lunatic, that he was a madman, just like others who might have had this conflated sense of self, thinking they're descended from the gods, you know, think about uh, pick your poison in terms of, uh, although that, I guess, is a pun, you know, your cult leader, um, David Koresh, you know, whoever it be, claiming some kind of, uh, you know, 
reincarnation of Jesus. They're lunatics. The scriptures don't give us any opportunity to see Jesus as the raving of a madman. He's always controlled and intentional about what he says. The next option is that he was a liar, that he knew better. He knew he was just a regular old guy, but he lied about his true identity. Now, I would suggest that if Jesus was lying, that would invalidate everything else that he said. He cannot be just a moral teacher. Because if he was, because you may have heard that, you know, Jesus was just, he was a moral teacher. That's all he was. But if Jesus was just a regular human being, then there was nothing moral about what he said. I would argue that he's not a lunatic. He's not a liar. And so the only other option is that he is the Lord, that he is precisely who he said he was. Before Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave the great commission. He said this, this is Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Again, pretty bold statement. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, speaking to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus claims to have authority over all of heaven and earth, all of life and death. In the words of Rebecca McLaughlin, quote, he presents himself not as one possible path to God, but as God himself. We may choose to disbelieve him, but he cannot be one truth among many. He has not left us that option. He either is who he said he is, or he's not. Now, fast forward 2,000 years. You or I do not have the empirical data to test this hypothesis. This is where faith comes in. Either Jesus, who he said he was, died on the cross, rose from the dead, or he wasn't. And he's still in the tomb. So taking Jesus at his word does require an exercise of faith. It requires us to put our trust in him. You know, without having a, you know, peer-reviewed, beyond the shadow of any doubt, assurance of this reality. And I, I think there is a lot of data that would suggest that the, the Christian claims are credible, as I've been sharing. Um, but I recognize that there is a, a place of faith that we need to consider. So um, I've got a, a, a diagram. This is a French theologian, mathematician, Blaise Pascal. He's the guy that invented the calculator. You might learn about him in, in your, like, history or math classes. Um, But he provides a way to think about this conundrum, and it's come to be known as Pascal's wager. It might be hard to read, but here's a little image of it. Two-by-two grid. He basically states there's four options. Either God exists or he doesn't exist. So that's kind of on that x-axis. That's the truth as it lists there. The y-axis, belief is, the other two options are we either believe in God or we don't. Now, this matrix attempts to display who has the most to lose by being wrong. Now, I'm going to say, like, this is an overly pragmatic argument. Like, this should not be the only reason that we pursue Christianity, 
but it's supplemental. I think it, 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 it goes along this ample evidence that I've been sharing used to support a Christian worldview. But Pascal states that if God does not exist, so that's that right column, but we followed him anyway, you know, we've wasted our lives. Paul says we're to be pitied above everyone else. But that is a finite loss. We're not going to get that time back. Maybe we didn't get to live it up. Maybe we sacrificed more than we would have liked to. Um, But hey, oh well, that's just the way it is. But if God does not exist and you did not follow him, it's it's a finite gain. You know, you got to live it up a little bit. Conversely, though, if God does exist and we followed him, we receive an infinite gain. Life everlasting. But not following him in his existence is an infinite loss. And the way that Pascal, this is why it's called Pascal's Wager, this is like, you know, trying to play a parlay. You might hear about parlays if, as you're watching, you know, playoff games today. You know, you're couching your bet to see what has the most opportunity to help you and the least opportunity to harm you. So I think in thinking about this, this is another way to engage this conversation about how can you say there's only one true faith, right? Who has the most to lose by being wrong? Hint, it's the, uh, this says finite loss down here. That's not supposed to be a finite loss. That should be infinite. I stole this from the internet. Can't trust everything you read on the internet. Um, now, I'd, I'd wager that most of us in this room have been uh, convinced of Christianity. Um, you know, we, we've been convinced of the, real, the reliability of this. We've experienced uh, the love and grace of Jesus Christ. I don't know, while we were singing worship this morning, I don't remember which song in particular, but I kind of had this flashback to, gosh, it's been almost... Uh, almost 30 years that I, I came to faith and had this kind of powerful experience. I've shared about it before. I'll share about it again some other time, I'm sure. Um, right? I had this, this like kind of existential connection with God. And that, that helped. I mean, it was at that point in time that I, I didn't fully understand the gospel, but I, I devoted myself to God because I was like, you're out there somewhere. Like, you're real. Uh, it was in my, my short-term atheism phase, but that's, that's neither here nor there. Right? We've experienced the love and God of Jesus. We've committed ourselves to his kingdom. But the next step in our framework, if that is us this morning, if that's you this morning, how does that interact with the broader world? As we hold fast to our belief in Christianity as the one true religion, how do we interact with our neighbors who might believe differently than us? Now, asked another way, can people of different beliefs live alongside of one another peacefully? This is like those bumper stickers that you see that say, you know, quote-unquote, coexist or tolerance, where they use the, you know, the letters are made up of different religious symbols and imagery. I mean, at a fundamental level, yes. I I believe that we can live alongside of one another. It doesn't mean that we have to always agree. That doesn't mean that we're always going to get along perfectly, right? My, My wife and I, are both followers of Jesus, and we still don't get along perfectly, right? So there's going to be times where you're going to run into to someone of a different faith that you uh, might have conflict because of, of that. But I think the important thing to remember is disagreement does not equal disrespect. Uh, that's something I think we need to hear in the age we live in. Disagreement does not equate with disrespect, we are quick 
to draw lines around whatever issue we are passionate about in the moment, right? We, we live in this time of heightened polarization. And so the, the ethic often is, if you are not for me, if you are not in my camp, then therefore you are automatically against me. Disagreeing with someone else's worldview is often viewed as a sign of disrespect. I don't believe that it is. I've had enough conversations with other people um, who have different, believe different religions, you know, different faith systems than I do, and we're able to agree to disagree. We're able to respect one another even in the midst of our disagreement. One of us is right, or both of us are wrong, I guess that's always an option too. Uh, we're not both right, but we can still have a, a gracious conversation and a re- even a relationship through that. But let me take our con- conver- conversation regarding religion one step further. We're not talking about just respecting those around it. If I believe that Christianity is the truth and that all other religions are ultimately misguided, is it wrong to persuade someone to follow Jesus? Is it wrong for us to use our art of persuasion to invite someone or try to convince someone to follow Jesus? This pushes up against another ethic in our postmodern world where you can live your truth as long as you leave me alone to follow my truth. Our culture gets a little squeamish when it comes to contradicting someone else's worldview, telling them they're wrong. But not everybody can be right about this. Now, I would challenge you to consider the Bible and the practical motivation for us as Christians to take this concept to heart. I I believe that we're supposed to use the art of persuasion. Now, when I say that, persuasion, I don't mean manipulation. I don't mean aggression. Persuasion to invite others to acknowledge and recognize the kingship of Jesus Christ. I mean, you can point to plenty of places where this has been abused. The Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, I mean, even in our modern world, this conflation of Christian morality and conservative politics, as if they are one and the same. But these demonstrations are not at the root of the gospel. I mean, take that word gospel. It comes from the Greek root, which means literally good news. We are sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, first, the biblical support. I already quoted the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, where Jesus tasked his disciples with making disciples for his kingdom to go teach, baptize others across the world. The New Testament is filled with examples of the disciples, later called apostles, another Greek word which literally means sent ones, journeying across the Roman Empire, persuading others to follow Jesus. You have Philip going south and ministering to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. You have tradition which teaches that Thomas, the one who initially doubted the resurrection of Jesus until he, you know, was able to touch, put his fingers in the wounds of the crucifixion, having experienced this physical resurrected Jesus, goes to India to share the news with others beyond the confines of Rome. Paul, the whole book of Acts is focused on, not all on Paul, but in it we see Paul make four separate missionary journeys communicating this message to both Jew and Gentile across this expansive Roman Empire, telling people this joy that he had found in the truth that had been realized through Jesus. So the Bible invites us to do this, to follow after these apostles who have gone before us. 
But from a practical perspective, Christianity is exclusive. It teaches that it is the only way to God. But it's also profoundly inclusive. There are no requirements of age, gender, social status, wealth, intelligence, culture, none of those things in order to find acceptance. I think that gospel is aptly named because it ought to be good news to the world. If we're sharing it, if we're trying to persuade someone and it's not coming across like good news, we're probably not doing it real well in that moment. We should be motivated to share the good news with others so that they too can experience what we have, experience the love and grace of Christ. You know, if you go to your doctor for an annual checkup and they run some tests and they determine that you have cancer. They wouldn't be a very good doctor if they allowed you to let you, you know, just going to let you live your truth, that there's nothing wrong with you. In that example of, of a doctor, medical profession, right, it would be an act of love. Persuasion would be. So too, I would argue, Our persuasion towards others should be like that, an act of love, inviting others to come to face with the truth about their brokenness, but also the great love that God has for them. Tim Keller used to say that through the gospel we learn that we're far more broken than we would ever care to admit, and at the same time more deeply loved than we would dare hope. And so as we prepare to go from this place, taking some of these things. I have a few questions for us to consider, and I'd encourage you, you know, I have three questions like I usually do, and they, they're, they're kind of in a gradient, depending where you are, right? Find and focus on the question that is most relevant to where you find yourself right now, whether you, you know, are kind of erring a little bit more on the side of, of a skeptic questioning the legitimacy of Christianity, or maybe more focused on what to do with the faith that you claim. So here, here they are. So the first is this. This is kind of the question of borderline skeptic. Do you believe in the exclusive claims of Christianity? Why or why not? You know, what is it philosophically, what is it historically that is either causing you to yes, agree with it, or no, not? Kind of process through that. Name those things. Second is this, you know, if you hold to the Christian truth, what is it that gives you confidence? Why do you hold that? I I hope the answer is not just because my parents raised me Christian, because that, that really, I mean, there is so much more research that you could do. There's so much more things that you could rely on um, other than just like, oh, it's just the faith of my parents. What does it mean for you to make it your own? Lastly is this, that last point of being persuasive. What prevents you from being more persuasive with your faith as an act of love to those around you? And kind of not parenthetically, but as an addendum, you know, especially thinking about those that you cherish the most. You know, use that as a, as a doctor. I, I mean, I use this metaphor f- sometimes that, you know, the, the scriptures, like even the gospel is, could be used two different ways um, from a medical perspective, right? Like think of a scalpel or a sledgehammer. Um, and I apologize for those of you who have heard me say this before, but I just think it's an, a, a helpful illustration. If you're using it like a sledgehammer, man, that's not good. That's, that's Bible thumping. That's like the Bible said, and therefore you must, it, right? What do you use a sledgehammer for? Breaking up concrete. You don't want to break up your friends, you know, ah, knock them down to build them up again. That's not what we're here to do. I like you thinking about the gospel or the scriptures more like a scalpel, 
Right? A scalpel might inflict some pain, but in the hands of a trained medical professional, it provides healing. So there we go. What prevents us from being more persuasive with our faith? Let's pray, and then we'll have one more song to sing together. Lord, I, I thank you that you have come, that you have given us assurances um, of your existence. You have uh, pointed us and helped us know who God is. I remember Philip Yancey in his expression, uh, his book, talking about having a fish tank. And, and every time he would get near that fish tank, the fish would dart away, even though all he ever did was care for them. And it occurred to him that, that he would need to become a fish and speak to them in a fish language for them to understand. And God, that is what you did to us when you came as Jesus, to help, help bring context Help give us the words and that special revelation to tell us what you're about. May we take these truths and may we lean into them, live them, and be a beacon of your light, sharing that light of the gospel with those around us. We pray these things in in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.